warm providence. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning and grateful to open the scriptures to this most glorious of passages. We pray that you would grant us to understand the things that we read and to revel in their truth, to revel in their fulfillment in Christ, and as we leave this place, to walk appropriately in them looking forward to their ultimate fulfillment on the last day. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. This morning we're going to begin by reading the last, the last section of the chapter, verses 29 through 34. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand once again and we'll read just this last section. Leviticus 16 beginning in verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this, this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. You shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. You may be seated. When you hear the word Chernobyl, what do you think? Chernobyl. Some of you may, be, may not be old enough to think anything. But the people of Chernobyl most closely associate that word with, with the concept of home. The rest of the world associates the world, the, that word with nuclear disaster. And because of the nuclear disaster that took place there on April the 26th, 1986, for the people of Chernobyl, it is the home to which they will never return. Some experts have estimated that it will take 3,000 years for the radioactivity to subside to the level where Chernobyl will be again habitable. Other experts say that is way too optimistic. 3,000 years will be too soon. For the people of Chernobyl, it is deadly to go home. What, what, a, what a picture 
of the great problem of mankind that Chernobyl represents. Eden was like a cosmic spiritual Chernobyl. God's presence was man's home. He was designed only to flourish there. But the combination of the holiness of God and the sin of man result in this reaction that we might call wrath, which makes the presence of God utterly uninhabitable for man. But unlike the radioactivity of Chernobyl, there is, there is no fading of the wrath of God over time. It is, it is eternal. And so for man, it is, it is deadly to go home. And that's why the tabernacle of Exodus and, and Leviticus, this tabernacle was, was such good news. Man couldn't go home to Eden, but in a sense, God was coming to man in the tabernacle. And we might think of the tabernacle as something like a, a spiritual hazmat suit. It provided a place for man to meet with God without dying. And you'll remember that there was great joy in Leviticus chapter 9 when, when the people realized, hey, this works. We can meet with God here and we don't die. You'll remember the people, the people shouting for joy at the end of chapter 9. And as we begin chapter 16, we're reminded that actually there is a problem. Sin defiles the meeting place of God and man. Sin defiles the meeting place of God and man. Sin defiles this meeting place of God and man. Look with me at, at Leviticus 16.1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. With that verse, that first verse of chapter 16, we're reminded of the context. The tabernacle was the answer to man's separation from God, but man's sin contaminated the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was in a sense going to fix this problem of man's separation from God, but but, but man is so problematic in his sin that it contaminated even the tabernacle. It's a disaster. If we were to think of the tabernacle again as that spiritual hazmat suit, we might say the people are so radioactive in their sin that they make the suit radioactive. And, and so what was supposed to, to be a place of life, a place of meeting with God, this tabernacle, well now it's a place of death. It's a disaster. We've just had five chapters, chapters 11 through 15, of cleanliness laws. And re remember what were the purpose of those laws? We can scan back to 1531. If you just look back to 1531, we see what those laws were intended to do. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that's in their midst. These laws are intended to prevent the people from defiling the tabernacle unto their own, own demise. But then we read 16.1 and we're reminded, oh yeah, the tabernacle is already defiled because of what Nadab and Abihu did in chapter 10. And so chapter 16 is all about the cleansing of the tabernacle from the sins of the people so that it can once again function as a place of meeting with God. And we begin to see in verse 2 a crucial pattern laid out for us 
blood must cleanse the meeting place from sin. Blood must cleanse the meeting place from sin. So let's look beginning at verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. And he shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. There are several things to note about those few verses. First of all, there's a particular person to do this task of cleansing the tabernacle. It's Aaron, the high priest. There's only one person who can do this. Second, there's a particular time to do it. He can't just go in whenever he wants, but there's a particular time. Third, there are particular sacrifices by which he must do it. He must come with sin offerings and ascension offerings. Sin offering and ascension offering on his own behalf, and sin offering and ascension offering on behalf of the people. Fourth, there's a particular garment to wear. These are not the typical priestly garments that we read about in in the book of Exodus and that that he was clothed with earlier in Leviticus. No, this is an all-linen outfit. It's, It's all completely white. Fifth, there is a particular place to go, the holy place. Until now, Aaron has not entered the holy place where the mercy seat is. Apparently, in order to cleanse the the meeting place with blood, he must enter the very inner sanctum where, where God's presence is and apply blood there. Now, what would happen if he were to go in there in, in a way that does not observe all of these things that we've, that we've just seen? Well, he would die because God is there. And remember, what happens when holiness meets the sinfulness of man? Death, just like that radioactivity at Chernobyl. You cannot go there. And so God's giving gracious very precise instructions so that death might be avoided while cleansing the sanctuary. Now let's look at verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this right now. Just note that there are two sin offerings here. One is the bull for Aaron and his family. The other is the two goats for the people. Now, look back up to verse 5 for just a second and notice that the two goats, the two goats are one sin offering. 
Both of them together are the sin offering. Lots are going to be cast over them, which is something akin to rolling dice. And this is the way of discerning the Lord's will. It's the way of discerning which one God wants to die and which one the Lord wants to live. Together, these two goats are going to picture atonement. And we'll get to that shortly. Verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. That the blood's bull is, is, is essentially being shed for the sins of, of Aaron and his household should, should be obvious to us as we've, as we've seen the sin offerings before. This blood is... is taking the punishment for the sin of Aaron and his, his household, essentially. The sprinkling of the blood on and in front of the mercy seat pictures the wrath of God being satisfied. Now, this scene speaks to how serious and deadly sin is in the presence of the holiness of God. Aaron can't just walk into the holy place carrying the blood of the bull for his own sin. If he did, he would die. He needs something to cover him while he walks in there with the blood. He needs something, in a sense, to buy him some time while he applies the blood. And that's what the incense is about. You may remember incense in the earlier chapters representing a pleasing aroma before God. So he goes in first with that incense, this pleasing aroma, so that he doesn't die while he's applying the blood of the bull for his own sin. And his household. Now, I believe I mentioned in an earlier passage that the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of, of, of the Bible, the whole Pentateuch is a chiasm. It's like a, a mirror image of itself. That is, there are striking correspondences between Genesis and Deuteronomy and striking correspondences between Exodus and Numbers. And in the middle of a chiasm, there's always something very important in the middle that speaks to the rest of it and helps us to understand the rest of it. And so Leviticus is in the middle of the chiasm. So this book that we're studying, Leviticus, is highly significant for understanding all of the rest of the Pentateuch. Well, I've also mentioned that Leviticus itself is structured as a chiasm. And guess what chapter is in the middle of Leviticus? Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is also a chiasm. And I don't have, I don't have time to, to show all of the correspondences. I encourage you to take the time to try to, to note how these things, how the beginning and the end mirror each other and, and moving in toward the middle, how the, the different uh, sections mirror one another. But as we move toward the middle, we get to this very significant place. So, so what we have is a chiasm in the Pentateuch, Leviticus itself is a chiasm. The center is Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is a chiasm. 
The center of the chiasm of Leviticus 16 is verses 15 through 17. It would be very difficult to overstate then the significance of the verses we're about to read. Verses 15 through 17 are the center of the entire Pentateuch. So look with me beginning at verse 17. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting for the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Now, this is the goat, this goat that he has slaughtered and and taken into the, the holy place. This is the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh. The goat is slaughtered and its blood is brought inside the veil and sprinkled where God meets with man. It pictures pictures one aspect of atonement, the satisfaction of the wrath of God for the sin of the people. Now look again at verse 16. There's a peculiar word here that's used only a handful of times in all of the Old Testament, uncleannesses. And it's particularly meaningful, or it should be to us, given the chapters that we've just studied over the last few weeks. One thing that we've noted as we've looked at chapters 11 through 15 was how it seemed that just existing as fallen humans in this world results in uncleanness. Not not even intentional ungodliness, but just, just having children and just getting sick and just being male and female Just being causes uncleanness before God. And that uncleanness defiles the sanctuary, defiles the meeting place of God and man. And as innocuous as some of those things in chapters 11 through 15 seem to us, they are deadly according to 1531 precisely because they defile the sanctuary. But the blood of this goat pictures satisfaction of all that wrath. And the Lord uses several synonyms here to capture the totality of the satisfaction of that wrath. Uncleannesses, transgressions, sins. What's being depicted here is a comprehensive solution, it seems. And what a relief on the ears of Moses is, He's hearing these instructions, these instructions that he's going to pass on to Aaron, and Aaron is going to obey. What a relief. Verse verse 18, then he, Aaron, shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And, and with that, all of the tabernacle has been covered with the blood of these atoning animals. Verse 20. And when he's made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat 
and Aaron shall lay both hands, both his hands, on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, I I didn't say anything about Azazel earlier. That name was used repeatedly in that earlier section. The lot, one lot fell on the goat for Yahweh, the other on the goat for Azazel. Lots were cast for the two. We really just don't know anything about who or what Azazel is. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. What we do know is what this goat does, which is what has just been explained to us. We just read it. After the high priest confesses the sins of the people over this goat, the sins are essentially transferred to that goat, and the goat takes them to a desolate place. And this is the other side of atonement. And that's why the two goats should be seen together as one sin offering. Some mistakenly think that that what's being pictured here with these two goats is that one dies so that the other can go free. One dies so that the other can live. No, that they both picture atonement. One pictures the satisfaction of wrath. The other pictures the removal of sin, both of which are part of atonement in Leviticus. And here again, there are these these three words used for, for sin. All their iniquities, all their transgressions, all their sins. Close synonyms that are being used to bring a sense of totality to the removal of the guilt of the people. Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his, his garments and come out and offer his, his burnt offerings and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. So here we see next come the, the, the burnt offerings or, or what we've called the ascension offerings. We saw in chapter 1 that the ascension offering makes a statement of consecration. I belong to you and with you. And, and this can only be said once the sin offerings have been made. The, ascent, the ascension offerings are a way of acknowledging that, that everything has been made right by the sin offerings. And, and we come back again then to verse 29 and following that we read at the very beginning where we see the portion of the chapter where God is, is basically summarizing everything that we've said. He's summarizing it into, into a law the, saying here's the ultimate significant of these, significance of these things and instructions for the people's participation. And there are several notable features about these last few verses, verses 29 through 34. First of all, the people are instructed to 
humble themselves. Another way to render it would be to afflict themselves. Most understand this to mean that it's the expression of contrition and repentance through fasting. Second, they're to do no work. Verse 31 is more literally, this is, this is a Sabbath of Sabbaths. This is the uber Sabbath. This is a most holy Sabbath. It's set aside strictly unto the observance of what is taking place at the tabernacle, which is that third atonement cleanses the people from their sins before the Lord. Atonement is cleansing the people of their sins before the Lord. Fourth, perhaps peculiarly or perhaps just what we would expect, this is going to be a regular occurrence. It's going to be a regular occurrence. Verse 34 says, says once per year. Verse 29 tells us when that's going to happen once per year. It's going to be on the 10th day of the 7th month. The sanctuary is going to be cleansed in just this way. And so we realize then that this will be an annual occurrence implies that this sanctuary is not going to stay undefiled. It's not going to stay undefiled. Now let's think about let's think about patterns. Genesis one through three, God created man in fellowship with him, told him how to live in fellowship with him, how to serve him. Man disobeyed and was cast out because holiness of God. And the sinfulness of man result in wrath, which renders the presence of God uninhabitable for man. So man is cast out. But right there in Genesis 3, God promised a provision for cleansing of that space so that he could come back. Right? Well, that's what's pictured here in Leviticus 16. Nadab and Abihu had instructions for how worship was supposed to go. They disobeyed it. The people are then separated once again because the sanctuary is defiled. But God has here in Leviticus 16 provided for cleansing so that the people could come back. And what have we seen in in chapters 11 through 15? God is giving laws to prevent the people from defiling the sanctuary again. But He assumes... They're going to do so. And so he has made a provision to annually cleanse it so that they can come back. The entire Pentateuch is this pattern. Man disobeys God in the garden. He's cast out of God's presence. The conquest in Joshua is the cleansing of the land so that man can come back into fellowship with God as his people. Now, as the people are about to enter the land in the book of Deuteronomy, God forecasts a a distant future iteration of this whole pattern. God says to the people in in Deuteronomy 28-30, through I want you to obey me in the land. I want you to follow all all of these laws. But listen, you're not going to. And so I'm going to cast you out of the out of the land. But I'm going to cleanse the land so that you can come back. And that's exactly what happens in the exile and return. And so so what we find happening is just over and over and over, over and over and over. People sinning against God, resulting in wrath, being, being kicked out of his presence to save them from dying 
and God cleanses that space so that they can come back. Happens over and over and over. Now, while Leviticus 16 pictures a wonderful thing, we, we might say that it, it pictures an almost wonderful thing. Because if we, if we sit Eden beside Leviticus 16, we can't help but feel the imperfection of the solution, right? Leviticus 16 doesn't make things exactly the way they were. Because it's one man, once a year, entering the presence of God. And even if Aaron, the right man, goes in there at any other time and does anything incorrectly, he dies. If another priest, another consecrated priest, goes in there on the right day with all the right implements, he dies. Eden, on the other hand, is just unfettered access to God all the time. At, at best, on that one day, Leviticus 16 represents life with God in a hazmat suit. You, you can kind of get close to God, but it is far from ideal. And even as you're enjoying the reality of it, you know you know that because God has written into the law that this is an annual thing, you know that you're just going to defile it again. You're just going to defile it again. So even though you've got this, this gracious solution, it's an imperfect solution. It has to be reapplied and reapplied and reapplied. It is a solution that testifies to its own inadequacy. And simultaneously, pictures the perfect one in Christ. Perfection is that Christ provides the ultimate atonement. And all of the Scriptures are looking forward to that, looking forward to perfection, which is Christ providing the ultimate atonement. As we look at Leviticus 16, we find that virtually every component of this chapter culminates in and is fulfilled by Christ. So I want to catalog just some of these things for you. There are glorious parallels between Christ and the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. First of all, there was, there was a particular place that atonement had to take place, a particular place. Ultimate cleansing must take place in an ultimate sanctuary. Not an earthly temple, which Exodus indicates was a mere model of the heavenly, but the, the, the sanctuary where Christ makes atonement is the very heavenly sanctuary. Just as there had to be a, a particular person to atone in Leviticus 16, so also a particular person has to atone in the ultimate sanctuary. Promises have been made about who this person will be from the very earliest pages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 3 says it will be the seed of the woman, this, this seed that will come from Adam and Eve. It's going to be the, the son of Abraham. It's going to be a son of Judah. It's going to be a son of David. And yet, we find here in, in, in the law that it also has to be a priest. Only the high priest can enter on behalf of the people. And we find in, in Psalm 110, David 
putting all of these pieces together, understanding that His coming Son, promised in 2 Samuel 7, would be a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And there David seems to recognize that His coming Son would be divine, the very Son of God. So Jesus is the high priest, but of a better order than Aaron. There was a particular time that the priest had to go. A particular time that the priest had to go. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, when the right time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And we read over and over in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus having a, a very, very keen sense of timing. He said over and over, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. But boom, we get to chapter 13. He says, my time has come. There's a very particular time for the tabernacle to be cleansed. There were particular vestments that had to be worn in Leviticus 7, 16 the cleansing of the tabernacle. Garments in the Old Testament and New Testament picture a person's guilt or innocence, their, their uncleanness or cleanness before God. How does this pertain to the Lord Jesus? Well, Jesus walked this earth for 33 years, daily resisting the, the onslaught of temptation so that He might fulfill all righteousness and prove Himself worthy to enter the sanctuary, not on the basis of a covering given to Him, but on the basis of a covering that He earned by His own obedience. We find in Leviticus 16 that there was a particular offering that had to be brought. Well, Jesus would not bring a sacrifice for himself, he would not need to because unlike Aaron and all others before him or since, Jesus never sinned one time. And had Jesus sinned, it would have ruined the whole thing because not only would Jesus have been unworthy to enter the sanctuary, but Jesus the high priest was not intended to bring the sacrifice of an animal, but he was bringing his own blood. In a very real sense, Jesus was the sin offering of the people in that He was from and of the people. Jesus is both goats of the sin offering. His blood was spilt to cover sin and His body bore the sins of His people away. So on the cross, Jesus bore the sins of others. He suffered and died there, satisfying the wrath of God. And in His death, He took those sins to the grave and buried them there. And three days later, He rose again, leaving them behind. And, and this is why we read the apostles writing things like Peter in his second chapter and 24th verse. He, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And John writes in 1 John 3, 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. Yes, there are, there are glorious parallels between Christ and the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, but there are also glorious distinctions, things that are completely different between the atonement of Leviticus 16 and the atonement of Christ. Each year in, the, in the, the atonement of the Old Covenant, the high priest, when, when he's done, when, when, when he comes out, he takes off those linen clothes and he leaves them in the tent. Why? Because he's going to need them next year. But, but what did Christ say on the cross? He said, it is what? It is finished. There, there, there is nothing left to be done. 
His work is completely done. Atonement is accomplished. And whereas in Leviticus 16, the high priest alone could enter and but once a year, the veil remaining there, even as he's finished on, on, on that on that. Tenth day of the seventh month, the veil remains there as a barrier between God and the priest and the people. And not just between between the, the, the people and God, but the barrier remains there between the high priest and God every day of the year. Remember the passage that was read for us this morning from Matthew 27. When Christ died on the cross, a spectacular phenomenon took place in the temple. The veil was torn in two. But the completion of the atonement. Now... Everyone united to Christ in faith is welcomed perpetually into the presence of God. And more than that, so intimate, so constant is the fellowship purchased by Christ's blood that God not only dwells closely with His people, but He dwells inside them in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of this should lead us to a particular practice. We should live in light of blood-bought fellowship. We should live in light of blood-bought fellowship. I'm going to give you five ways that we should live in light of the perfection of the atonement purchased by Christ. First of all, We should repent and believe that we might be saved. We should repent and believe that we might be saved. Now, listen, the Jews were not unique in their estrangement from God and sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wonderful truth is that although the Old Testament is a story of of one particular people for the most part, God intended from the very beginning to bring Christ to all nations through that one people. And for that reason, Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so everyone who hears this news of the perfect atonement that is in Christ should turn from their sin and trust in Him alone that they might be reconciled to God, that they might go home to God rather than being separated from Him forever under wrath. Second, having trusted in Christ, not ourselves, we should enjoy a clean conscience. We should enjoy a clean conscience. One thing among many that that Jesus could do that animal sacrifices could not is clean the conscience. And that's because Jesus could actually take away sin. All of these things that we've seen in Leviticus are but pictures of what Christ actually does. These animals are accomplishing nothing. They are but pictures of what Jesus does. Jesus actually takes away sin. He actually takes away guilt. Gone. He actually removes the penalty of sin. Gone. So that there is no need to look sheepishly at God. 
but we can enjoy the freedom of a clean conscience, which leads to a third thing. We should draw near to God with confidence day and night. We should draw near to God with confidence day and night. Many of those who have repented and trusted in Christ live as if they still exist in a Leviticus 16 universe. That is, they approach God in prayer and worship only rarely, and even then with trepidation. Let us follow the teaching of the New Testament and boldly approach the throne. We come not with the blood of animals, but covered with the blood of the eternal Son, pure and undefiled. My sins were stacked to the sky, but the wrath owed to me was satisfied by the death of Christ. And, and, and the New Testament teach, teaches, I've already died with Him by faith. And, and I've been raised with Him by faith. Because He paid the death owed to me, there is nothing now due to me but the riches owed to Christ. And so, boldly I approach the throne in Jesus' name. Boldly I approach the throne. Romans 5 verses 1, through two, one and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What a tragedy for us to stand outside the holy place, as it were, while Christ has covered our entrance evermore with His blood. Let us enjoy fellowship with God. Fourth, we should walk in obedience. We should walk in obedience. 1 Peter 1, in 1 Peter 1, the apostle calls our attention to the costly nature of the sacrifice by which we were were redeemed. Let's think for a moment about the costly nature of the sacrifices in Leviticus 16. A bull is nothing to sneeze at. This is a large animal. That's a lot of money. Goats, this is a lot of money. But, But Peter calls our attention to the fact that we have not been redeemed by perishable things, but by the precious blood of Christ. And on the basis of the value of of the blood with which we've been redeemed, Peter then calls us to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. In fact, he quotes Leviticus 11.44. Knowing the value of the blood that bought us, we should love holiness. We should pursue the holiness of Christ. So, so, so as we meditate on the gospel, we should be thinking, I was not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so I'll not take for granted that cost, but, but I will love Jesus. And I will love Christ's likeness. And by His Spirit, I will pursue Christ's likeness with all that I am, with all that I have. So we should, we should walk in obedience in light of this perfect Atonement that Christ has bought. Finally, this final thing. 
we should look expectantly, joyfully, hopefully toward home. We should look expectantly, joyfully, hopefully toward home. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the joy of fellowship with the saints, the purposeful spread of the aroma of Christ, all of these things that, that we have in this, in this life, these wonderful gifts. Listen, these are all but forecasts of something better. And that something better is not, is not simply a return to Eden, but to a better home, the new Jerusalem. We're not going to Eden. We're going to something better. Where the dwelling place of God will be with man in the complete absence of the possibility of sin and death. So, so let us not hope in paltry temporal joys, but in Christ who has made it the case that for the one who has faith in Him, it is not deadly to go home, but it is life and it is peace eternally. We were, we were created to abide with God. We, we can only flourish in fellowship with Him. These things point us to this truth. Christ has atoned for our sin so that one day, the day that He returns for us, we will do just that forevermore. I'm going to, I'm going to pray. We're going to enjoy a, a, a few moments of silent reflection. I'll encourage you, think through these things. And, and, and perhaps in addition to the things that I've just mentioned, what would the Lord have you to do with these things? Or maybe which one of these things would He have you to focus on particularly? Let's consider these things in the next moments. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that these things are true. We thank You for the many pictures that You have placed in Your Word of the, of the hope, the salvation that exists in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, that the tabernacle was not the end game, but that it was a picture of the salvation coming in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that those of us who have followed Jesus, that we would revel in these things, that we would love these things, that we would live in light of them in all of the appropriate ways. Most importantly, looking forward to going home and honoring you in that by making the most of this life, making the most of your name in this life. Father, there may be those among us this morning who have never turned of their sin and trusted in Christ to save them. And so, at this moment, in a very real sense, uh, the best they could ever hope for is something like a spiritual hazmat suit. And the day that they die, they will spend eternity separated from you. under your eternal wrath. We pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on them in this moment by granting them to feel the reality of their state before you. 
that they would feel the weight of their sin, that they would feel the hopelessness that is theirs in themselves, that they cannot make things right themselves. Help them to feel that, Lord, and, and, and sense the truth, see the truth, believe the truth of the things that they have heard this morning. And Lord, would you grant them to see the beauty of Christ, the sufficiency of His sacrifice, and move them, Father, to turn away from their sin, surrender their all to Jesus, to trust in His sacrifice, His life, His death, His resurrection, to reconcile them to You. So that for them, it would not be deadly to go home that it would be life and peace eternally. Father, if, if there are those like that this morning, we pray that, that they would repent and believe. If they have questions about those things, Father, we pray that you would move them, that you grant them the boldness to approach the rest of us and ask, tell me more about these things. Lord, we thank you for the truth. We, we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.